Hey, what's up, guys, and welcome to episode 38 of Talk 4, the quickfire podcast where we ask four great questions to unique and interesting people. Behind the mic today is your host, Louis Scoopian, that's me, and our special guest for today, Mark Keller, who's going to be answering some questions today. Mark, please say hi, introduce yourself, and give us a quick rundown of who you are and what you do before we shoot some questions. Sure. Hi. Uh, happy to be here, Louie. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is uh, Lieutenant Commander Mark Keller, United States Navy, retired. Uh, my fighter call sign is Slider. Uh, I spent four years on active duty in the United States Air Force uh, and as an electronic warfare technician and 16 years on active duty as a naval flight officer. So I am not a pilot. Uh, I'm not Maverick. I'm Goose. I'm the, I'm the brains in the back. Uh, but yeah, I uh, so I flew the F-14 uh, Tomcat for most of my career and uh, finished up in the F-18 uh, Super Hornet. Damn, that's such an impressive career. Jeez, I mean, I've only heard about you recently, but, you know, before the podcast, I get to have a good look at all the people that, you know, guests on my show. And damn, you've done some you've done some amazing things. You know, I can't wait to ask a few questions. I've got some really good ones lined up. So, you know, if you're, if you're good to crack on, should we get into question number one? I bring it. Hey, let's do it. Right. So for the first question, you know, tell me about your backstory. How did you get into flying in the military in the first place? You know, what was your inspiration behind it? And what was it like, you know, the experience as a military pilot? Yeah, well, that's a big question. We could probably talk for about a week on that. But <laughs> uh, the short version would probably be I I've always been fascinated with flight. Uh, I've always been fascinated with uh, the idea of space exploration, going to the moon. Um, you know, the Apollo program was still going on when I was a little kid and, uh, I watched a lot of, uh, lost in space and I dream of genie and stuff like that. Uh, major Nelson was a big hero of mine. Um, my father was a private pilot and we used to go to air shows, uh, when I was a kid and I always loved that stuff. So I've had the bug since I was very, very small. Um, yeah. How did I get there? Um, well, I was enlisted, uh, like I said, in the United States Air Force uh, as an electronic warfare technician. Um, and that got me close to it. So I was around, uh, I was stationed in uh, in South Korea back in 87, 88, where we flew uh, A-10s. Um, and we flew U-2s out of Osan uh, Air Base, a little bit south of us and all that stuff. So I was real close to it. And I, I got to know some guys who were, who were pilots. And uh, I decided I wanted to do that. Um, tried to get an ROTC scholarship and didn't make it. So I uh, did my four years in the Air Force and uh, got out and went to work and worked my way through uh, uh, engineering school. Uh, I got a degree in electrical engineering. And because of my background in electronic warfare i had a security clearance and i had some knowledge of radar technology so when i was there i got a job working in something called the electronic communications lab at the university of florida uh it had absolutely nothing to do with communications that was a cover story that dates all the way back to world war ii where they were doing some early radar research uh with the army research lab and uh, mit lincoln labs so what we were doing at that time was uh, we were doing some early work on ground penetrating radar. We were using uh, uh, doing some work on radar proximity fuses for artillery shells. And the big daddy was uh, we were doing some of the early work on automatic target recognition for the longbow fire control radar on the Apache helicopter. So 
we were trying to, we were looking at huge data sets and trying to teach the processor and the radar how to distinguish between a rock and a truck or a, you know, a Soviet tank and a U.S. tank and all kinds of stuff like that. We did some early neural net uh, processing and stuff like that. And that was just, you know, fascinating work. And I, I decided uh, that I was going to go on and become a researcher. And I started working on my Ph.D. Uh, in electrical engineering. But there was a thing, uh, you know, this bug was still there from when I was a kid. And, you know, I spent, uh, you know, Monday through Friday, I was in a lab doing research work. And on the weekends, I was jumping out of airplanes. So hmm. uh, I was a free fall photographer, um, you know, as a college self-financed college student, uh, I had to make some money doing it if I was going to keep that habit up. So I, I, you know, did a few videos every day and got a few fun jumps in there. And so there was a stark contrast between these two lives. One was action-packed, fun and excitement. The other one, though intellectually satisfying, was fairly low-key. And and one day I just got a bug and pushed my chair back and said, you know what, is, is this really what I want to do with my life? And so I took a moment and said, what's the coolest thing in the world? Uh and I, I went back to where I was when I was a kid worshiping Major Nelson. And I said, I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> so I started poking around. I figured out what's a, how do you get to be an astronaut? So the the best way or, or the source, uh, at least at that time, uh, the largest source of astronauts for NASA was Navy test pilot school. So I got out a phone book. I said, called up the Navy and I said, hey, I want to fly those F-14s. Uh, of course, I'd seen Top Gun, so that was a factor in there too. But I said I wanted to fly those F-14s, and they laughed and, and said, "Well, there's a couple things you have to do first. Of course, you know, I was what 24 years old at that point. Uh, I wasn't aware that I couldn't do everything I wanted to do. But uh, you know, I got through the process. They tried to send me to uh, to nuke school. Um, I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to go fast and and fly high and make my way to uh, test pilot school. So. Everything worked out. I got into the F-14 and uh, off I went. Um, there you go. I mean, that's a that's a hell of a career you've had there already. And I mean, it's nice that you got to fulfill that childhood dream, though. But I mean, in terms of the astronaut thing, is that still on the table for you? Are you, are you planning to go to the moon at some point soon? What's the what's the crack of that? Well, if Elon calls me up, uh, I'll, I'll <laughs> jump in whatever he wants to put me in. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd still love to do that. You know, life happens uh, as my career went along. Um, you know, my first deployment uh, aboard the USS uh, Theodore Roosevelt happened in the, in the early spring of 1999 when the Kosovo conflict kicked off. Uh, we were the only aircraft carrier involved in that conflict. And uh, I was the new guy, uh, along with a couple other my buds. But uh, you know, we went there and we were at war. Uh, they had, you know, fourth generation Soviet anti-aircraft defenses. And, uh, you know, they shot at us a lot. Uh, we were we were all an ass and pulling G's and, and trying to stay alive and hunting down, uh, you know, Serbian armor and, and artillery pieces and all this other stuff. And, uh, you know, notable in that conflict is it's the only one in history where air power alone has driven an invading force out of a country. So, uh, you know, I was. Uh, it was an exciting time, a lot of action, a lot of stress. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm proud to have been part of that. Uh, that was quite an experience. And, you know, during that, we 
we dropped an awful lot of laser guided bombs. So back in those days, you know, we didn't have those tactics really highly developed. Uh, we kind of made a lot of stuff up as we went and there's a lot of trial and error, but I became an expert on those weapons. I can uh, tell, fast yeah. forward to, yeah, fast forward to the, to my next deployment. Uh, we were in, uh, the Persian Gulf, uh, aboard the USS enterprise. Uh, we, we were at sea for about six months. This was, uh, yeah. So there was an unprecedented amount of activity going on in Southern Iraq in the Southern no fly zone at that time. Uh, Saddam was, was, you know, always testing us. Uh, and you know, every time they shot at us, every time there's a, a, a violation of the treaty, they would move a, a missile battery below the 33rd parallel or something like that, or they would shoot at us over Basra as we were returning to the ship, we would respond by, uh, you know, we would strike some targets. And that's, we played that game for over a decade. He, he pokes us, we poke him and it just went on and on and on. But, um, you know, we were pretty busy during, during that period. That was 2001. So we went through the Straits of Hormuz on September 9th, 2001 and we were uh going to return back to the states via a port visit in south africa which hadn't been done in about 20 years uh with at least not with a nuclear aircraft carrier so that was a big exciting thing for us and we were really looking forward to that on september 11th 2001 uh we were the ships just cruising along everyone was tired and worn out and uh you know most everybody was in the rack just trying to sleep it all off uh, I happened to be sitting in the ready room, me and the duty officer, uh, waiting for uh, a bird to come up from the uh, hangar bay. Uh, it had some maintenance work done on it, and you know we had to get all our airplanes groomed to, to fly them off when we got back to the States. So I was sitting there in my gear waiting for this post-maintenance check flight to come up, watching TV, and I watched you know, both planes uh, hit, the, hit the World Trade Center. Mm. Um yeah, a little different than most people's 9-11 story, but we were right there. We were we were steaming south, probably off the I'm guessing we we're southern tip of Somalia at that point. We were in the in the northern Indian Ocean. Uh within three minutes, the ship turned around. Uh, you know, like most people, when that second airplane hit, we we knew something something intentional was going on. And we turned the ship around within three minutes. Yeah. We could have flown strike missions into Afghanistan that night. Uh, if it wasn't for the diplomatic requirements, we had to get overflight of Pakistan and we had to get some tankers, uh, into there and all that stuff. So we sat around for a couple of weeks, getting Intel briefs, strike planning, doing all of that. But then we flew the, uh, uh, you know, along with another carrier that came over from Japan, we flew the first strike missions into Afghanistan. Wow. I mean, you've done so much stuff and, it's nice. It's nice to hear that perspective as well. I mean, it was a year before I was born in two thousand and two. All that happened, but um, yeah, I can imagine it was it sent shockwaves throughout the whole world, didn't it? And um, it's it's great that you know people took it that seriously, and they still do nowadays. It's such an important time to remember. And uh, I want to ask as well. You haven't answered this, but where did Slider come from? Well, what, what's what the call sign? You know, is there a little bit of a story behind that? You know, what's uh, what's going on here? Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of a story. Uh, a lot of people have much better call sign stories uh, than I do, but I can tell you that the common thread is that, 
it's it's always poking in the eye. There's always something stupid you did or something you reacted badly to. And uh, when they see that you don't like it, then they they smack it on you and it sticks. Yeah. Um, uh, mine uh, mine has absolutely nothing to, to do with the movie Top Gun. Uh, I actually inherited my call sign from one of my instructors when I was down in Pensacola. His call sign was Slider, and, and he happens to be my doppelganger. Um, and he and I, he and I didn't see eye to eye on some things while I was going through training. So, uh, when I got my wings and I headed up to Oceana to go through the F-14, uh, training squadron there, uh, some of his old squadron mates saw me when I walked in the, literally the day I walked in the door, saw me and, you know, as is customary in that, uh, in that field, they looked me up and down and walked in circles around me and said, does that, is that him? Is that him? And that, you know, they were messing with me. They could see that I was getting steamed and uh, they said, Hey, do you know this guy? You know, and they said his name and, and I said, oh, I hate that guy. And that blew it for me. So here I am, uh, you know, was that 25 years later and people still call me slider. I got <laughs> used to it. There's much worse call signs I could have had. I can imagine, yeah. No, I think you've you've done pretty well there with that one. I think uh, you you probably got off lightly. I think uh, that's that's a pretty cool call sign to have. But um, anyway, so for my second question as well, let's move on from um, where we left off on question one here. So obviously, you know, since leaving the military, you went on to create Zone Five and American TV to go with the two. Um, my question is then, how did you come up with the idea for these companies, and what was it like for you transitioning from the military to the business world and you know creating companies and stuff? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, getting especially after spending 20 years on active duty, that transition to civilian life is a difficult one. Um, you know, you uh, become accustomed to being surrounded by highly trained professionals who are very mission oriented uh, people who do a good job just to do a good job. They communicate well. They report on themselves when something's not going right. Uh it's a great thing. Uh, I miss that much more than I miss the flying, to be honest with you. Uh, how did I get into, so American TV to go, uh, happened first. Uh, you know, remember I'm an electrical engineer. Uh, I grew up in a house where my father was an electrical engineer. We had a, a laboratory in our basement, essentially. So <laughs> I grew up with a soldering iron in my hand and, uh, one of my squadron bros, uh, was into TiVo hacking. So a TiVo is, you know, the early digital uh, video recorder, kind of the the next evolution from the the VHS tape. Yeah. Um, and they had Direct TV TiVos back at that time. So my buddy uh, found some some forums where where software guys had figured out how to get in there and pull the hard drive out and install some software on there to give you access to the box and to treat it like a like a networked computer. I got very interested in that because I'm a tinkerer uh, and I started playing with all that stuff. And I got pretty far down the road with, with figuring out how to decrypt the video. Uh, I started building my movie collection for my next deployment. Uh, that, that was really what I was trying to do. Um, and to be brutally honest, I love the show Seinfeld. Uh, there happens to be 180 episodes of Seinfeld and the typical Navy deployment is 180 days. So I thought if I could collect all 180 episodes of Seinfeld, uh, 
I could watch Seinfeld each night on my next deployment. So that that was my silly motivation, but it was mostly just my curiosity and my uh, inclination to tinker with things. But that eventually evolved to uh, I figured out how to stream the video live uh, from my TiVo. Now, remember, this was probably back in 1990, late 96, early 97 when I started doing this. Uh, around that time, I got orders to a squadron in Japan, um, and I really wanted to be able to watch live American television while I was in Japan, primarily because uh, I went to the University of Florida. I'm a Florida Gator uh, die hard and I love football. So I wanted to be able to watch my football games in their entirety mm -hmm. while I was, while I was, uh, in Japan. So I got this system working, uh, I called up a couple of guys at the squadron that I was going to. And, uh, one poker night, they, they turned it on cause they wanted to watch a NASCAR race. Uh, and I, I, they started blowing up my phone and said, I want one too. I want one too. And I said, Oh, here's an idea here. This might actually be a business. So, uh, I had some other things going on in my, in my life at that point. Uh, I didn't end up going to Japan, but that uh, created the opportunity for me to build that that business idea I had. So it started very, very small. Um, you know, I had one rack in the back of somebody else's data center locally. And then, you know, as it grew, I, uh, I expanded into a data center up in Richmond. By the time I retired from the Navy in 2012, uh, I had enough customers, probably a few hundred at that point, that the economics made sense to build my own data center here in Virginia Beach. So I did that, um, knowing that someday the big boys were going to get involved in, in live streaming television. Uh, I built, instead of a, a, a lean and purpose specific data center i built a general purpose data center with the intent to expand into uh web hosting co-location and all, all these other business to business type things you can do with a data center so i did that uh american tv to con continue to grow for some time um i started getting some co-location business mostly based around tv um you know most big data centers uh, charge a lot of money for roof rights. And so to get satellite feeds and, and over-the-air television feeds and some other stuff we can get with antennas uh, is really, really expensive. So once I got into that little niche, uh, I, I started attracting some business. One of the guys I attracted had nothing to do with TV. He was uh, into Bitcoin mining. Um, I didn't even know what a Bitcoin was when this guy showed up. This was this was pretty early on. Um, but he had his machines in there and I, it was kind of fascinating to me. And I started reading up on that and I said, this is the way of the future. We're going to get into Bitcoin mining. So we built uh, a considerable uh, mining, a considerably large mining farm. Uh, it produced enough heat that the, uh, our section of the building never had snow on the roof. <laughs> um, but we did really well on that. We produced a, a lot of Bitcoin. Um, and that, uh, you know, that whole data center business, that's what we call zone five. So once we saw uh, some other businesses starting to uh, uh, embrace the hosting other people's minor uh, Bitcoin miners model. Uh, we got into that for a while. That's a very difficult business, uh, especially when you're going uh, 
when your customers are smaller customers, they might not have a lot of financial backing or deep commitment and stuff. And so we had a lot of small companies in there that we hosted their stuff for. And that didn't really work out long term. And uh, and that's okay. Um, you know, I'm kind of over that business at this point anyway. Zone 5, I'm, I'm actually getting ready to sell it off right now. So the TV business is still there. Zone 5 still there. Uh, I've lost interest in it. Uh, I'm more of a builder than a, a stand there and turn the crank guy. So that's the story of all that. Damn, that's 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 a fantastic story. And I have to say as well, you know, when I was reading up about, you know, American TV to go, the first thing that I thought was, wow, this isn't just, you know, a business or some sort of a, you know, something to sell. It, it fixes a problem like all good businesses do nowadays and, you know, entrepreneurs and stuff out there. Everyone, you know, you have to find the problem and then, create the solution to fix it and I think that's that's exactly what it did isn't it because it's it's such a it's such a great way of you know bringing the comforts of home out there as well isn't it so you know I hope you got through your 180 episodes of that show you were watching and um, that sounds great and um just just on the back of that as well I'm just wondering do you do you feel like your success and you know creating these companies and stuff do you feel like you know the military sort of approach and stuff to it and the stuff that you learned and practiced and trained in the military do you think that's kind of credited you know to the additional success of these businesses that you've started I mean to me you seem very adaptable and stuff and you seem to be kind of you know taking these situations and just turning them into something you know pretty golden so do you feel like you know the military experience has actually kind of enhanced that success of yours or do you think it's just just you kicking ass <laughs> uh well, uh, you know, obviously you've, you've got to be a, a confident fellow to, to even pursue getting into fighter aviation. So, you know, some of it, uh, if you're asking the chicken egg, an egg question, there's some egg in there. But uh, <laughs> definitely being in that environment where uh, you are constantly uh, under extreme pressure to perform, uh, often under-resourced. Uh, and with a mission that must not fail no matter what, uh, it forces you to be creative. It forces you to be resilient, uh, to innovate, um, and to just not give up. So, yeah, you learn a lot of toughness, uh, especially as a combatant uh, when you serve in that way. So, yeah, that had a lot to do with it. Brilliant. Right. Well, then, so to move on to question number three, then um, let's talk about, you know, a bit more about the kind of experience you have for, you know, the next generation of, of pilots. So um, for the next generation of the fighter pilots, uh, you know, who wants to get into the military and get flying, what tips do you have for them early on in their career to progress fast? And also, what are some of the danger signs to look out for, you know, when it comes to stress and trauma and that side of things that could also, you know, maybe be prevented if it gets recognized and seen early on by them? Right. Yeah. And I think you just tipped your hand on question four there. But yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah we can talk about that. Um, you know, first of all, uh, you have to do well in school. You have to take your education seriously. You have to prove that you can set a long term goal and that you can meet all the intermediate steps to achieving that goal. So, you know, you have to demonstrate that you can keep your eyes on the horizon and pursue uh, relentlessly. Uh, you know, there are plenty of guys who hop into these airplanes who are history majors. Um, you know, I think some technical background is helpful. Um, you know, if you're a guy like me who likes to take cars apart, work on engines and build things, you know, that's a that's a good thing, too, because these airplanes are incredibly complex. 
you have lots of lots of, of systems that you need to understand in depth because when you're airborne, there's generally nobody there to help you. If you have a problem with your airplane, you've, you've got to understand what the systems are and how to survive all of that. So, uh, you know, if you're inclined to that sort of thing, that's a big plus. Uh, the education's a big plus. I would also say, say some, some athleticism is helpful. You know, if, uh, you know, if you can't pull G's, pu pulling G's in an airplane, when you're pulling seven, eight G's, you know, I'm a 200 pound guy. If I pull seven G's, I weigh 1400 pounds. You know, and if I'm in a dog fight, my, my head, you know, weighs 120 pounds. I've got to twist around and see behind me. Um, I've got to be able to, to activate controls inside the cockpit and all that stuff with all that extra weight. So I would say a fella should, should take his physical fitness very seriously. Um, and I, th I think the last thing is you just got to have a burning desire to do it. There's a lot of bars to hop over to get there, particularly if you want to get into fighter aviation. Uh, there are many, many filters you have to go through, not, not only in the process of getting accepted to the training pipeline, but just surviving it. Uh, you need to be ready to take criticism. Uh, you need to have a thick skin. Uh, as a matter of fact, you need to welcome criticism because that environment is all about brutal honesty um and the reason you know we're so good at it is because we call each other out all the time and we get used to inviting uh critique and and what could i have done better here every time you do something so if you have that kind of personality that that can endure some 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 tough things you have to hear once in a while it's really going to serve you well Okay, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine it's just, it sounds so demanding, the whole job and the experience of it. And, you know, I've never, I've never been in a, in a plane like you, you have, but um, I can imagine, you know, from stuff that I've heard and things that I've read, it's, it's just incredibly demanding, isn't it? And um, so anyway, I want to talk a bit about something that we haven't, haven't actually touched on to yet, but um. You know, I know that you're part of No Fallen Heroes. Um, you know, you've you've done quite a bit of work with, you know, Wiz Buckley as well, Matthew Buckley, um, with and the rest of the team there, you know, with all the kind of the psychedelic side of things and you know, post combat you know, trauma and stuff. It, it's absolutely fantastic what you guys have done. Um, I wanted to ask if you could take a moment, you know, to just deliver a message to all the veterans out there who are suffering after leaving the military, are feeling low on hope and you know, are just not sure where to turn. What would you tell them to put them back on the right path and give them hope for their future? I feel like you're really a good person to answer this. Uh, yeah, I think I think I am. And uh, let me give you a thorough answer on this one. Uh, the first thing I want to say right up front is you're not alone. A lot of guys uh, leave the military and struggle and you know, because of the requirements uh, to perform uh, when you're on deployments, particularly when you're in combat, you know, you have a lot of stress um, and a lot of a lot of times bad things happen. My story's certainly got plenty of that. You know, I had a pretty tragic event happen in, in Iraq in 2005. I put that in a box and I carried along with me uh, for a long time, uh, along with some other stuff. Um, there's lots and lots of guys like that. The problem is, you know, you get uh, 
it is ne- it is necessary to your survival in that environment to perform at a very high level all the time. Every time you get in the airplane, uh, you have a lot of pressure on you. Just taking off and landing on the ship is stressful enough. Now you go into combat, you've got people shooting at you, 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 you know, long days, no sleep, you're physically exhausted, it's hot, you know, whatever. All of that requires you to operate in uh, neurologically in fight or flight mode, right? No, we're not, I don't mean flight like flying, like I mean like <laughs> running away. So you have these very high cortisol levels. You just have stress all the time. You can't crumble under that stress or you, the mission fails or maybe you end up dead. So there's just an absolute imperative. Your survival instincts as a human force you to operate at very, very high levels of stress. And what happens when you deploy over and over and over again is that your uh, your neurology, your neurophysiology adapts to that and that becomes your new normal. So it serves you very well when you're in that environment. Uh, you know, the negative consequences of that while you remain within the structure of the military with a mission focus and guys around you who are, who are with you, uh, it... it, it, it it makes it hard to see what's happened to you over time. So when you get out and you're still operating at that very, very high level, you know, doing something like starting a new business, you can succeed brilliantly at that because you're still in combat. But when you start dealing with relationships and all the other stuff that goes on in life and you have that structure removed from around you, it's very easy to get overwhelmed by this stuff. And remember all those, I talked about all these things that you put in boxes and and you compartmentalize so you can stay focused on the mission when you're in. Well, when you don't have that mission anymore, those elephants come out of those boxes. And, you know, what I, what happened to me is I found myself surrounded by them and being trampled. Uh, And that is not uncommon. Um, With no fallen heroes, uh, you know, I know you've interviewed Marcus and I listened to, to that podcast. Uh, you know, he's a Navy SEAL. Uh, it's very easy for people to envision a guy who has to kick doors in and shoot people at, at close range and, you know, a lot of blood and gore and all that stuff. Uh, explosives going off around him. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that, that that's easy to understand there. The traumatic brain injuries that come from large caliber weapons, breaching charges, artillery, all this stuff those guys are subjected to, they cause traumatic brain injuries. You know, Marcus talked about that. Mm. What people don't realize is guys in fighter aviation uh, have the same thing. You know, those neuroadaptations I talked to, that's common between those two communities. The traumatic brain injury, this one's less obvious. Your brain is a kind of a massive jelly, right? All those, that tangle of neurons is very soft. When you're pulling six, seven, eight Gs over and over and over again under heavy vibrations, what happens is you get micro tears in your brain. Now, for some guys, it it doesn't accumulate and they seem to do okay. For a lot of guys, and as we've come out and started talking about this stuff, more and more of them are raising their hands, it does accumulate and it it is the same thing as having these traumatic brain injuries that you know these other communities talk about the difference in aviation is a lot of these good guys get out of the the military and they go to the airlines when you're an airline pilot you can't raise your hand and say hey man i'm having a i'm having some mental health problems 
I'm having some struggles. I'm depressed. I'm angry. All these things that that happen with post-traumatic stress. You can't say it because as soon as you raise your hand and say, hey, man, I need some help, your career's over. Mm. And this is a big, big problem. It is a... it is a Loch Ness monster. You know, it's it's lurking underneath the surface and we need to find a way. This is one of our many fights with no fallen heroes is we need to find a way for the FAA to give guys a little latitude, let them be human, seek the treatment they need to fix this stuff because it's very solvable. And that's, we'll talk about psychedelics here in a second. It's This stuff is very solvable, but you need to be allowed to be human you need to allow be allowed to say hey i'm hurting you need to be able to stand up and ask for help and it shouldn't ruin your life mm. it's it's just wrong and honestly i think if every guy that was struggling uh raised their hand we'd have a huge problem moving people around there's a lot of us out there um you know, substance abuse, your marriage has fallen apart, all these distractions. I mean, that's just not the guy you want operating your aircraft, right? So, okay. so we need to heal these guys. So how did, how did I get involved with all this? Um, yeah, I mean, I had some really, really bad things happen. Uh, you know, I was very successful for a while with uh, American TV to go and, and with Zone 5. Um but as these elephants started coming out of their boxes and they started accumulating, I got worse and worse and worse. And that culminated in a, in a panic attack. Uh, one panic attack, a single event that was highly situational. Uh, I will tell you that prior to that event, I was okay with taking an aspirin from time to time or maybe a, a multivitamin. But I certainly uh, was very much against uh, you know, antidepressants or any kind of psychotropic medication. But when I had this panic attack, uh, I thought I was dying. Uh, I, I literally thought I was having a heart attack. I called the doctor up, explained to him what was going on. He said, no, 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 that's a panic attack. And he prescribed me Ativan. Now, I had never heard of Ativan before. Uh, didn't know what it was. I figured it was some kind of uh, something to calm you down, a, a, a tranquilizer, which which turned out to be correct. But he said, run down to the drugstore, get this Ativan. So I went down and got my Ativan. He had me on uh, a half a milligram of Ativan four times a day, uh, which sounds like nothing. It's a little tiny pill, half a milligram. Uh, it's perfect. Effects were not profound, but I, f- I felt better right away. So he put me on that. Uh, I dutifully followed his orders. Uh, I went and saw him a couple weeks later when I could get into the office and he said, okay, I think we're going to keep you on this. Well, at this point, uh, I thought I needed it, uh, which was absolutely incorrect. Um, and, you know, this doctor unfortunately made a mistake. Now, I don't think it's because he's a bad guy or, or, or he's you know, horribly irresponsible or anything. I think it's the system that these guys are trained in is heavily influenced by the big pharma companies. Mm. They have an interest in making sure that these guys are going to prescribe their product and they are not always appropriately forthcoming uh, in, in uh, informing these guys about the dangers of these medications. And and my prescribing physician certainly uh, had no clue. You know, he didn't talk to me about tolerance. He didn't talk to me about dependence. He didn't talk to me about paradoxical effects. 
Uh, he didn't talk to me about the interactions with alcohol, the dangers of withdrawal, you know, potentially deadly withdrawal. None of this stuff. I just wasn't warned. Um, interestingly enough, years later, after the damage was was done, I went and pulled the FDA insert that comes uh, with any prescription you purchase. And I think on the third or fourth page of it, it's a it's a lengthy one with these type of medications. There's a, a one line in there. It says, you know, don't use for more than two weeks. Oh, God. Well, I was on. Yeah. Well, the reason there's a good reason why, uh, you know, I was on the stuff for four and a half years. So, um, you know, for some time, maybe a year, year and a half. Uh, I don't know if it was helpful or not, but the, but I was moving along through my life doing doing pretty well. But after that time, uh, a very, very insidious thing happened, which is. You know, these things are tranquilizers. So what they do is they uh, they alter the effect of your neurotransmitters on your neurons. So in, in the case of a benzodiazepine, which is the class of drugs that Ativan belongs to, along with Xanax, Klonopin, Valium, there's a, there's a whole list of them. Uh, the way these things work is they attach themselves to your GABA alpha receptors on your neurons. GABA is a uh, it's gamma aminobutyric acid it's a calming neurotransmitter uh it's always there it's necessary it's what helps regulate you and, and keep your level of, of uh neuro excitation appropriate mm -hmm. for the situation uh that is offset by um glutamate which is an excitatory neurotransmitter so these things are always there in your synaptic gaps they're in balance they they react to you know if a woolly mammoth is charging at you your glutamate shoots up and that's what makes you breathe hard that your eyesight your hearing your adrenaline your ability to fight all that that comes up right when when it's time to go to sleep, your GABA levels come up. That calms you. That settles you down, and you and you go to sleep. Right. So these things are natural, and they, and they're supposed to be there. When you introduce benzodiazepines, what they do is they affect the receptor sites on your neurons in such a way that the GABA that's already there uh, has a more powerful effect. So what your body does is, uh, especially if you're relatively healthy, you know, if you have a robust uh, physiology, your body is always going to try to return to homeostasis, that, that point of balance where these things are, are appropriate for you. Um, and so when you're taking these benzodiazepines for a long time, what your body does is it counteracts and it undermines the medication. It counteracts it by producing more glutamate. So that's the excitatory neurotransmitter, right? It undermines it by shutting down GABA receptor sites. So the medicine's trying to make the GABA receptor sites that you have more sensitive. Your body goes, nope, we're going to shut some down. We're going to get back to where we're supposed to be. And that is how you develop tolerance. So as these neuroadaptations happen, the way it works is this thing that was a tranquilizer initially eventually causes you to have paradoxical effects like anxiety. So this is given to you for anxiety. In a short term, it helps, but in the long term, it makes things much, much worse. Right. What's interesting is, uh, you know, the Veterans Administration did a study, and I think it was first published back in 2013, uh, in their guidelines for treating PTSD, where it says quite clearly 
contraindicated. Uh, benzodiazepines are contraindicated in PTSD because of paradoxical effects. Uh, it worsens the PTSD. It leads to uh, anger, you know, rage, depression, and substance abuse. Um, and, and I can tell you that you know, I didn't know these terms when I was going through all this stuff, but I experienced extreme disinhibition, uh, you know, basically being drunk. By the way, alcohol works on your GABA system as well. So it's it's kind of like being drunk. So extreme disinhibition, uh, I experienced derealization, which is this feeling that you're uh, walking around in a world that isn't real. Mm. Uh, nothing matters. Uh, I experienced depersonalization, which is a sense that you're outside of yourself, uh, watching your, observing your own life. Um, uh, you know, some paranoia, uh, rage, irritability, sleep problems. I mean, it just goes on and on and on all this stuff I experienced, but, um, and unfortunately as, a lot of folks do when they go through this, particularly guys with PTSD is I turned to self-medication. Um, now let me note at this, at this point that I didn't know that the Ativan was a problem. Remember I wasn't warned about it. Mm. Um, what I experienced was I, I would take my dose four times a day and I felt better after I took the dose. And as it wore off, I felt much worse. And it was just over the period of years that my baseline just kept getting worse and worse and worse. But because I felt better when I took the medication, I couldn't imagine that the medication was the problem. I thought it was me. That effect is called medication spellbinding. And it's it's uh, it happens with uh, antidepressants and some other medications as well, particularly if these things haven't been disclosed to you. You, know, you just don't know to look for them. So. Uh, you know, I started having trouble sleeping, um, and I started using small amounts of marijuana in the evening to, to settle myself down and get to sleep. It, it was effective. Um, the problem with that is, uh, you know, once all these neuroadaptations have happened, you are just the, the skids to addiction are greased. Um, you know, there's something called the anticipatory response in, in addicts that is, you know, when you think about doing this thing that, that you don't want to do, uh, you actually experience the effects uh, in an anticipatory way as if you had just done this. So it's true with marijuana and, and any other drug that causes a dopamine release. So that causes this long-term benzodiazepine use to you know, it just sets you up for addiction. And, you know, with all the other things, the cognitive fog I experienced was, was profound. I mean, my, you know, uh, my brain just wasn't working well. So uh, anyway, that's how you get down this path. And that happened to me. So I started using, mm -hmm. uh, you know, basically self-medicating with marijuana over, you know, maybe a year, year and a half that, that got to where my anxiety was so bad. I had to, I had to smoke marijuana all day long. Um, it was just unbearable to not do it. And that eventually led to some other drug use and, and, uh, you know, went cocaine, uh, and eventually ended up using IV cocaine, which is unbelievably dangerous. And, it, you know, is the most highly addictive substance known to man. Um, the period over which I, I did that, uh, was fairly short, but it was very intense and it, got to the point where I went to the doctor and said, 
doc, look at look at what I've done to myself. This is very, very bad. I need help. Um, I'm glad I did that. And he said, uh, you're going to have to go to rehab. And I said, yes, absolutely. I'm going to have to go to rehab. I'm going to kill myself here. You know, this was, I mean, I just, this did not fit my moral model. I knew this was wrong. I didn't, mm. uh, I didn't want to do it. And I was just aware that it was killing me. So um, what he said to me was, we're going to have to get you off the Ativan before you go to rehab. And I said, okay. And a bit late for a U-turn, isn't it? Well, again, he didn't understand how dangerous the withdrawal from this stuff is. Uh, he essentially cold turkeyed me off of the Ativan. Um, you know, for uh, some days afterwards, uh, you know, as this stuff worked its way out of my system, uh, you know, that extra glutamate that that was there without the ability for my, my natural GABA to offset it actually gave me a lot of energy. Uh, I was out running like a madman. I mean, I could have, I could have run a marathon. Uh, I was working out. I was doing all this. I was running around and that, you know, it's like a runaway throttle. Uh, we talk about an airplane. Sometimes your throttles will get stuck and they'll go all the way up and you're just going faster and faster and faster. That's exactly what happened to me. And for a short time, uh, it was actually useful. But after a couple of weeks, I arrived, uh, unfortunately, like, like anyone who, who, or like most people cold Turkey off of this stuff, I arrived at a point where I was in acute withdrawal. What I experienced was foaming at the mouth, uh, extreme tinnitus as if I had my head in a jet intake. Uh, and that's not an exaggeration, uh, sensitivity to light sensitivity to sound. Uh, I had this feeling like electricity was crawling all over my body. I was shaking, uh, every couple of minutes. It felt like someone was pouring a cold glass of water over my head. Uh, I mean, it was just absolutely just put me on my ass. Um, it was terrifying. So I started, uh, uh, I got on Google and I started putting in my considerable list of symptoms. There's much more than that, but those are the big ones. Uh, my long list of symptoms and what I came up with was multiple sclerosis. I found out later, this is a common misdiagnosis for people going through benzodiazepine withdrawal. Um, Furthermore, my brother has multiple sclerosis. So I said, oh boy, it's in the family. Uh, this made a lot of sense to me. I called my brother. I ex explained what I was experiencing without the Ativan. Mm. Mind you, I had no idea this was because of the Ativan at this point. Right. No clue. Um, so I ex describe all this to my brother and my brother says, oh yeah, you've got MS and you've got a really bad case. You need to get to a neurologist right away or you're going to die. And I said, okay, brother, thank you. And we got off the phone and I called my physician and, you know, it was two weeks before I could get an appointment, despite my pleadings, that's what it was going to take. So the next morning, my brother called me back again and he said, Hey, are you on any benzos? And I said, what's a benzo? He said, a benzodiazepine. I said, what's a benzodiazepine? He said, oh, you know, like Xanax. I'm like, no, I wouldn't touch that stuff. Everybody knows Xanax is bad. And then he starts lifting, listing off other medications. He gets to Ativan and I say, stop. Yeah, that one. I've been taking Ativan for years. He, and he said to me, I've seen this before. I've had a couple friends go through this. He said, you're going through benzodiazepine withdrawal.
And I said, oh, okay. Well, I went back to the Google and I started searching for that stuff. And I found a website uh, called Bad Benzos. I think it's badbenzos.org. Um, this website, uh, I can't remember her last name, but there was a woman, uh, her first name is Cass. Um, she went through the same thing, experienced the same things that I did. And sadly, uh, though very understandably, got to the point where it just made a lot more sense for her to end her own life than to go on. Um, you know, and unfortunately, that's very easy for me to understand. I can tell you that I got to that point as well, going through my withdrawal. Uh, I obviously I'm sitting here talking to you, so I, I managed to tough Thankfully, it out. Thankfully, yeah, I yeah, I'm grateful for that. Um, you know, and it was because my because I have children. You know, I just couldn't do that to my kids. It would ruin their lives. Sure. It was selfish. Um, you know, that's that's the way I looked at it. And not not to criticize her, but she wrote this. Uh, she wrote two letters on this website, ban badbenzos.org. One letter is to her friends and family uh, and, and the lay people of the world. And another one is, is to medical professionals. And she describes very eloquently uh, what she experienced. And and. You know, when I read that, I was absolutely certain that uh, I knew what was going on. So, um, you know, I'm thankful to her for having done that because it really helped me uh, get pointed in the right direction. So, you know, I called the doctor back. Uh, I called the doctor up and said, hey, I'm going through benzodiazepine withdrawal. And I described to him, you know, everything that I was experiencing uh, uh, he was mad at me because he was on vacation. So I <laughs> called his office and I was very, very insistent because I thought I was dying. I, I finally got him. and I explained all this stuff to him. He says, no, 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 no. You're going, that's stress. It's just stress. Um, I called him back the next day and I was much more insistent about it. And, uh, cause I knew it wasn't stress. And so what he came back with was he prescribed me Valium. Valium is another benzodiazepine. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, right? And yeah, I said the same thing. So, <sighs> you know, my my initial reaction was no way in hell I'm touching another one of these drugs. I had no idea what I was doing. He actually was correct to prescribe that to me, but uh, I, I'll tell you how he was wrong in the way he did it. So, uh, you know, he said, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna give you Valium. So I was on two milligrams a day of Ativan. He's, he prescribed me two milligrams a day of Valium. Uh, what he didn't know, and certainly I didn't know at the time, is that Ativan's 10 times more potent than Valium. So if he wanted to replace the Ativan, which is a short half-life benzodiazepine, with a long half-life benzodiazepine like Valium, he had to up it by a factor of 10 for it to have uh, you know, the desired re effect to replace the Ativan. Um, he didn't know this. The other mistake he made is, uh, though I asked him to send it to my local pharmacy, he sent it to a mail order pharmacy. It took 10 days to arrive. So in, as in those 10 days, uh, you know, I, I crested the peak of acute withdrawal and I started my way down the backside. And initially mm -hmm. that descent was very steep. I felt like I was going to get better. I was in hell, but I felt like it was going to get better. So by the time this stuff arrived, I had resolved myself to, 
uh, I'd resolved to never touch anything like that again. Uh, I said, I'm just going to tough it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in my mind, I extrapolated to ah, maybe a couple months, I'll be better. Uh, that was not the case. I spent seven months in a darkened room, rocking back and forth with noise canceling headphones on the, the air conditioning at 65. And I never slept for more than half an hour, maybe an hour if I was lucky. Uh, it was the worst torture I can possibly imagine. I would not wish this on anyone. It was a living hell. Uh, you know, just trying to make it to the next minute was my mission for a long time. Uh, you know, and there was some relief when I was trying to make it to the next hour and eventually the next day. But over those seven months, I educated myself on all of this stuff. Um, there's a lot out there if you know if you can find the places to look. So, as I learned about all the 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 neuro physiology and the neurochemistry that I just described to you. I learned about that while I was sitting in there. I had nothing else to do. I couldn't go outside. I, I was pretty much useless. So when I could, I read and I, I figured all that out. And it turns out that the right way to wean someone off of a short half-life benzodiazepine like Ativan is to replace it with a long half-life benzodiazepine like Valium. And then you have to very, very, very carefully taper someone off. So some people can get off of it in a few months, uh, about 15 to 20% of the population. Unfortunately, I'm part of that group has what they call an exquisite sensitivity, uh, to benzodiazepines. For me, uh, it took me a little over two years to taper off this stuff. Now the Valium, it helped some, I was definitely in a better state with the Valium than I was without it. However, it was still excruciating. I spent about two years laying on my couch doing nothing. Um, again, just trying to make it to the next day. And, you know, there was a lot of suicidal ideation during this time, depression, paranoia. I, I mean, it was just an, an indescribable hell. Um, and I, I'm actually so sensitive to this stuff that I ended up you know, grinding up my Valium, making capsules each day. I did what they call them daily uh, micro taper. I wasn't able to tolerate more than about a, a microgram a day of, of reduction, which is why it took two years. But, you know, I got myself off of that stuff. Uh, it's been about two years now. I still have lingering symptoms of post-acute withdrawal syndrome, but it's slowly, slowly getting better. So, <laughs> That's a lot. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hell of a lot. And wow. I mean, that's that's a that's a crazy story. And it's such a shame because it seems like so much of it could have been prevented, doesn't it? But, you know, just just going through all of that, you know, listening to all of it, it's made me think something, you know, we need our military. You know, every country needs their military. And, you know, the, the way these things are happening, it, it's it sounds so kind of off putting for someone who might want to, you know, join the military because they want to avoid these kind of things. And you know, one thing I want to ask you just from the back of all of that is, do you feel like there's anything that you could have done while you were serving, while you were in the military that could have potentially prevented these problems? Was there anything that you feel like if you could go back now, you know, to when you're in the cockpit or when these things happened that were bad, do you feel like there's anything that could have potentially stopped that or, you know, kind of cut the uh, cut out the rot early in that sense? Or do you feel like it was always going to happen that way in that line of duty? Really good question. Um, 
yes, there are some things that that could have mitigated this problem and can still mitigate this problem for the folks that are still serving. Uh, and this is part of our no fallen heroes mission. Um, you know, one is just education. If you, these, these guys in these high stress situations need to be educated about how that affects them in the long term. And with that knowledge, they would be better equipped to cope with it uh, and to prevent it getting out of hand like it does with so many people. You know, I don't know if you've seen this, but we always talk about 22 a day. Uh, you know, 22 veterans a day are committing suicide. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, the new studies that just just came out, I think it was a, a Duke University study. It's actually more like 44 a day if you include people who uh, overdose uh, on drugs and people who commit suicide on active duty. This is directly related to this. This is why it happens. So education is a big one. Uh, I think another one is, and something the military has been working on for a while now, is deglamorization of alcohol. Um, you know, alcohol is, uh, I suppose, if used in moderation and with proper intent, is is you know uh, uh, something that people enjoy and can serve a purpose. But uh, you know, in the military, guys drink like fish. Um, it's, it was just a big part of the culture, you know, and that unhealthy use of alcohol, uh, it leads to habits. It leads to, it trains you to seek a substance to feel better. And I think that's a foundation for future problems with, with drug abuse. Um, another one is that, uh, when guys are coming out of a combat theater, they need, a formal program that allows them to decompress. They need to face those traumas that they've put in boxes. They need to understand that there's a need to breathe. There's a need to, to release that tension, to pull their throttles back, to reconnect with their family and, and being a human. Um, you know, mindful practices, yoga, meditation. I know it sounds crazy for hardened killers, but it's what they need to readjust to the real world that the rest of us live in that would be very very helpful and you know one the big one and uh, the one that's starting to get a lot of attention now is psychedelic assisted therapy um i will tell you that you know when i was younger i went to a couple grateful dead shows uh you know i'd eaten some magic mushrooms and, and some stuff like that a couple times but mostly uh you know i would have said that's a party um, and you know, in my experience, it was at that time. And certainly while I was in the military, I didn't, you know, do anything like that, but, uh, you know, 10 years out, um, struggling, uh, like I've just described, um, it turned out to be exactly what I needed. And, you know, God love, uh, Marcus Capone. And, and by the way, you know, he wasn't the first guy to go do this. Um, you know, Jesse Gould with, uh, heroic hearts was, was doing it with ayahuasca for years. Um, you know, Marcus was, uh, I think the first guy, you know, he's a seal. He went, went down and did the, uh, Ibogaine and five MEO DMT or the toad, uh, therapy, which is, certainly a, a little bit of a well, it's a it's 
it's more of a heavy hitter than the ayahuasca is. The ayahuasca is enough for a lot of people, but for guys like seals who are just deep, deep into these problems, um, you know, it's appropriate to go with a more powerful medicine. So, you know, he kind of blazed the trail for the uh, seal community. Um, you know, I don't want to tell Marcus's story too much, but, you know, he came back and recognized a need to bring, uh, bring this word to, to the rest of the brothers in his community. So he started going around and finding guys and, and finding ways to get them down there. And they built vets, uh, veterans exploring treatment solutions, which, uh, you know, is just doing great work. I think they've, you know, sent over a thousand guys through the protocol now. Um, but as he was going around trying to raise funds, uh, he connected with, uh, my good buddy, Wiz Buckley. Uh, who had formed the Top Gun Fighter Foundation as a charitable foundation, just trying to do all kinds of things for veterans' causes. And he found Wiz and, you know, took him to dinner and uh, they were sitting at the table there and Wiz stroked him a check for six figures and said, go heal some guys. Wow. Um, and, and oh, by the way, <laughs> I have my own problems. So, you know, Wiz and Marcus went down there uh, through the medicine together and, you know, they became, became good buds. When Wiz came back, uh, he reported his experience to the Top Gun Options group that he runs. That's a uh, he teaches people how to how to do options trading. But one of my buddies was in that group, and he heard the story, and he came running to me and said, "Man, this this sounds like something you need." Now I was off the benzodiazepines at this point, but I'll tell you, all that trauma that was there from all the other things that had happened to me, it was still there. It was even worse. I had more trauma just from the suffering caused by the medication they prescribed to treat it. I mean, it was just a disaster. So, you know, this guy recognized that and and he said, man, you got to hear Wiz's story. So I went on YouTube and I found found Wiz's initial debrief, it was called. And he was just all excited. He'd just come back from this. And he's talking about all the healing he experienced. And I'll tell you, hearing it from Wiz is what, opened me to doing it myself because like i said before I, I i would have said that's some you know long hair hippie bullshit um <laughs> i just i just wouldn't have accepted that if i hadn't heard it from a guy like quiz so uh you know this is true this is why all these seals do it you know they hear a guy like marcus tell the story they're like okay he's my brother i trust him i can do it same yeah, thing with quiz you know he's another fighter it. guy yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of trust here because to go to do something, I mean, it sounds a little nuts. I, I know to a lot of people, it sounds nuts. And I, you know, if you're sitting here listening to this and you, you think it sounds nuts, I get it. I've done it though. And let me tell you when you're, when you have the need and this isn't for everybody, I mean, this is for guys who have a lot of stuff going on. Um, when you have that need, it works. You know, and so uh, uh, actually vets, uh, vets, I worked through vets and they sent me down and I went through the same protocol that, that those guys went through. And I can tell you, I came back a different man. Um, it's not a magic pill. Uh, this is something we have to be careful of. And, you know, I see a lot of people hopping on the bandwagon here with this stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know. Have you seen the Netflix series, uh, How to Change Your Mind? I haven't seen that, no, unfortunately, but I'll definitely take a look at it for sure. You should check it out. So there's a book. This is interesting. As I was coming back uh, from that trip, I was in the San Diego airport and I was looking for something to read on the airplane. And I saw this book by Michael Pollan, New York Times 
bestseller called How to Change Your Mind. And it's the science of psychedelic healing or I forget what the subtitle is, but I I saw that and I went, holy crap, the universe is telling me to read this. (laughs) So I grabbed that book and I read it uh, on the way back across the country and uh, I couldn't put it down. Uh, He tells the whole story. If you're interested in psychedelic medicine, you have to read this book. It's just absolutely the authoritative primer on on this topic. But um, you know, and Rachel Yehuda did a, a short documentary that kind of mirrors what, what's in the book, and that's available on Netflix. It's good stuff. It's real good stuff. But, uh, you know, having had these experiences, um, and, you know, I think it's too much to talk about here, but if you go on the Max Afterburner podcast that, that Wiz runs, uh, you can see Slaughter's story on there, and Wiz talks about his experiences and stuff. It's well well detailed in there. Uh, there's some pretty wild stories. It's very entertaining. <laughs> entertaining stuff and it's a lot of fun to get a trip report and talk about you know i saw god and all that stuff you know that's that's great it's entertainment um but that that's not how this stuff works you know what it does uh there's a couple things it does so one is you experience intense peace uh to just to know that that's available uh is healing in itself but on a neurological level, what it does is it it resets your brain. So there's this thing called the default mode network. And this has only been become understood in the last decade or so, but there's a specific set of neural interconnections in your brain that's kind of the container for your self-talk, uh, the stories you tell yourself all the time, the way you look at the world. That's all wrapped up in that default mode network. And uh, there's a, a paper by uh, Dr. Robert Carhart Harris at the Imperial College of London where they're, they're doing research on this stuff called the entropic brain theory. And uh, I think it's more than a theory. They have measurements to support it now. But uh, what these psychedelic medicines do is they cause high entropy uh, on a neurological level. So everything's fire and it's a lot of chaos in your brain. And somehow that resets your default mode network. It, it kicks the door open for you to come back after that experience and create some new habits, build a new default mode network that's healthier. Mm. Um, so this is why it's not a magic pill because you could, you could do that, feel better when you come back and then just fall back into your own habit, your old habits. Uh, and by old habits, I mean, just the way you think, uh, the way you look at things. If you come back at, with a lot of intent to become a better person, to heal from all this stuff, to to find some peace, and and you do that through, I'm like, I can't believe I'm a yoga nut now. <laughs> I'm the last guy in the world who would have done that. I dig yoga now, man. I meditate twice a day. Uh, you know, I go run on the beach in the morning. I watched the sunrise this morning while I was running on the beach. Uh, I've shed a lot of things out of my life that caused me stress. And I've just, I've just learned how to settle down. And, and that's where the, the healing happens. So for guys who are really, really deeply traumatized, this stuff is appropriate. It kicks the door open and it gives you an opportunity to walk through it and, and get yourself back. Well, there you go. That is a, that is a very well-read answer, I think. And, you know, thing, fingers crossed that, you know, someone gets to hear this and, you know, I'll do everything I can to promote it, but I really hope that, you know, someone gets to hear this story and it's so powerful. There's, there's so much meaning behind it and stuff. And I just think that 
people need to hear it as well. And it's it's good that you're being loud about it too, because you know these kind of things. You know, some people might find you know quite personal and stuff, but you know, it's it's when you start to get kind of loud about it, making posts, you know, starting pages and funds and charities and stuff like you guys have done, like Marcus did, like Wiz did, like you're doing. You know, that's that's where you know people then start to realize well you know what i'm not alone in this fight am i and you know i, I can start to reach out to people and you know I, I can get help and i can go down the same path so yeah no credit to you for for doing what you do and you know for being loud about it and making sure to get it out there i think um that's a very powerful story and I, i'm very very happy for you that you're you're in a better place now but hey you know that is a um that is our four questions done for today and uh before we wrap it up, you know, it is time for what I like to call the shameless plug. So, you know, Mark, feel free to take a minute and, you know, promote anything that you want people to have a look at or just something you believe in or anything that you're working on. I'm sure you've got lots on. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. Uh, so shameless plug. Uh, first thing is just I'll repeat a message to anyone who's struggling with depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress. You're not alone. You're not alone. The reason we are, I mean, I just pulled my pants down here, right? The reason I'm doing that is because all that crap that, that we've gone through, it has to mean something, you know? So we're telling these stories to people so that they feel empowered. They feel like they have permission to be human, to say, I need help to ask for it, to seek it out. And we're telling you where to go. You know, Vets is, is a, a good organization. Jesse Gould at Heroic Hearts, you know, go to those guys. They're going to help you. The No Fallen Heroes Foundation that that I'm a part of, you know, Wiz's Charity, come to us. If you need help, go to nofallenheroes.com. Go to our web page, uh, you know, go to our web page, go to, go to Facebook, go to social media. We're all over the place. We're telling these stories. If you're not sure, listen to the stories. You're, if you're someone who needs this kind of help, these things will resonate with you. Raise your hand. Come to us. We will help you find some healing. And for God's sakes, if you're thinking about ending your own life, just don't do it. Raise your hand. Reach out to us, please. I beg you. No more of this. We've got to make it stop. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Mark. That's a very powerful message. And um, hey, you know what? Thank you for your time. And thank you for joining me today for the Talk 4 podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on. This has been awesome. Thank you, Lou. Yeah, a real pleasure for me too. I, I appreciate uh, you helping us get it out there. Awesome. Right, guys. Thank you guys for listening. This has been episode 38. Geez, we're starting to sniff the uh, starting to sniff the big 50 now, I think. Um, and if you'd like to listen to our past episodes, you know, go and have a look at our channel. And if you'd like to be tuned in for our future ones, make sure to hit that subscribe or that follow button and spread some love by leaving a like and a comment. Signing off for now. <laughs>